Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. Stress often comes from situations beyond our control, such as preparing for a meeting, waiting for test results, or arguing with a loved one. But we can control our response to these everyday tensions. One way to do it is through the wisdom and practices of Stoicism. Stoicism is an ancient pragmatic philosophy that teaches us to step back, gain perspective, and act with intention. My guest, Massimo Pagliucci, is here to introduce us to the timeless Stoic teachings. Massimo Pagliucci is the Katie Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. He has published in outlets such as the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Philosophy Now, and the Philosopher's Magazine. He is a fellow of the Committee of Skeptical Inquiry and a contributing editor to Skeptical Inquirer. He publishes two blogs, Plato's Footnote on General Philosophy and How to Be a Stoic on his personal exploration of Stoicism as practical philosophy. During our discussion, Massimo will give us an overview of the Stoic philosophy and the three disciplines of Stoicism. He'll also describe how we can apply the principles to everyday life challenges and use them to thrive under pressure. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hello, Massimo. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you making time to be with us today to share your immense knowledge on Stoic philosophy. I actually started reading about Stoicism about a year ago, and I have to say I really resonate with the teachings. And your book, A Handbook for New Stoics, is one of the best books out there on it. So I'm really excited to discuss the basics of this ancient teachings with you today. Thank you. Sounds good. Yeah, the handbook for new Stoics is certainly unusual because it is the only book that I know of that it's almost entirely devoted to practice. You know, there is a lot of good books out there about the history of Stoicism, about the sort of the general theory, the general philosophy, with some references to practice. But the handbook is what it says in the in the title. It's just about exercises. Yeah, yeah. It is full of great exercises. So it really kind of... Uh, crystallizes the teachings. And I think that people would really, really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, that's what we tried. The the general idea with my co-author, Greg uh, Lopez, was 
to help people not just talk about stoicism, not just sort of kind of uh, practicing, but really get into a steady uh, a steady practice. Because, you know, uh, according to the Greco-Romans, philosoph- practical philosophy, philosophy for everyday life, works pretty much like going to the gym. You, you can't just do it in theory, n- nor can you just do it once in a while. You have to do it, if not every day, at least several times a week. Otherwise, you don't really reap the benefits. It's, it's, it's a similar idea. Mm, yeah, and it's it's a lifestyle, isn't it? It is. That's right. Uh, so it's it's best understood as a lifestyle, uh, similar to you know when the, the the Stoics often made a comparison not only with athletics between philosophy and athletics, but also between philosophy and health. And so these days we're told, for instance, uh, by doctors that we shouldn't go on a diet, meaning a temporary regime during which you eat well and then the rest of your life is this you know you can eat whatever you want the idea is you shift to a different way of doing things permanently right so it becomes a habit uh it's it's difficult initially it it takes a little bit of effort uh but you know nothing of value doesn't require a little bit of effort so here we are yeah restraint and balance um are very big values i noticed uh in stoic philosophy Correct. One of the four cardinal virtues is temperance, so mm-hmm. self-control, basically, right? Self-control. So for the, yeah. For the Stoics, and boy, don't we need that? Don't we need that <laughs> yes. in our society nowadays? <laughs> really? <Yes. laughs> okay. Uh, so, Massimo, uh, some of our listeners may not exactly know what Stoicism is all about. So, how would you describe Stoic philosophy to a newbie? Uh, that's a very good question. So Stoicism is one of a number of philosophies of life that uh, took shape during the Hellenistic period, basically between the fall of the Macedonian Empire, the death of Alexander the Great uh, in 323 BC, and the rise of the Roman Empire, about 31 BC. So it was a period of about 300 years. And interestingly, at about the same time, maybe a century earlier, other major practical philosophies also arose in other parts of the world, like Buddhism in India, uh, Confucianism and Taoism in China. So it's kind of an interesting period where a lot of these uh, new ways of looking at things, new ways of, of doing things arose. So Stoicism in particular is based on the notion that uh, the main goal in life should be ethical self-improvement. That is, you want to become the best human being you can be. And what does it mean to become the best human being you can be? Uh, According to the Stoics, it means two things. They thought that our species, Homo sapiens, is characterized by two things. There are two things that differentiate us from every other animal species on Earth. One, we're capable of reason to a much higher degree than any other species on Earth. And two, we are more social more our societies are far more complex and structured than any other uh, creature in the world so from from that according to the stoics it follows that a good human life is one in which you use your reason to solve problems and you try to live in a pro-social way in other words cooperating with other people trying to live in harmony with other people so basically stoicism is a set of principles and exercises that allow you to improve your reasoning abilities and your cooperation or harmony with other human beings Mm. 
Great. Thank you for that. And you seem very, very passionate about uh, <laughs> educating people on stoicism. So I'm curious, Massimo, what is it about stoicism that drew you in? Yeah, good question. It, it happened in a little bit of a weird way. Um, a number of years ago, I was going through a essentially a midlife crisis, like a lot of people do. And, you know, a couple of things that, um, you know, setbacks in my life had happened, and I didn't really know. I wasn't sure how to deal with them. So I was looking for some kind of general framework. I grew up uh, in Italy, in Rome, and so I was, when I was young, I was a Catholic. Uh, but but I left the church when I was a teenager. After that, I considered myself a secular humanist. But when it came to crisis point, you know, things like my father dying, for instance, I found out that secular humanism didn't really have a lot of resources that were helpful to me. Secular humanism is a it's a great general idea. It's based on the notion that we should uh, accept reason and science, that we should be uh, working in favor of universal human rights. That's all nice. But, you know, when it comes to actual personal setbacks, such as a, a loss in the family, those those ideas are too general. They're too broad. They don't, they're not really very helpful. So I thought, okay, um, I'm a philosopher. I'm going to look into philosophy. Uh, surely, if the religion is not the answer, and if psycho-humanism isn't very helpful, and there must be some other philosophy out there. So I actually went through a period in which I systematically looked at a number of possible candidates. I started out with Buddhism, actually, and then I moved to some of the Greco-Roman philosophies like Aristotelianism and Epicureanism. But none of those really spoke to me. They, they were all interesting. They all said interesting things, but none of them kind of clicked at a more basic level. Until one day, uh, of all places, on Twitter, I saw this thing that said, um, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And hmm. I thought, what the hell is Stoic Week? And why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? Because, of course, as many people do, I understood at the time, I understood the Stoics as being people who lived through life, you know, with a stiff upper lip and uh, yeah. try to suppress emotions, you know, that sort of stuff. Kind of a Mr. Spock from Star Trek. <laughs> and I thought, who, yeah. who wants to live that kind of life? That doesn't right. sound like um, yeah. particularly good. But then I thought, okay, well, it stoicism was a very um, uh, powerful and, and uh, you know uh, widespread ancient philosophy. So let me try. Let's let's figure out. Let's let's study. The very first Stoic author that I read was a guy named Epictetus, who lived between the the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, and he was an extraordinary person. He studied out his life in uh, Hierapolis, which is in modern-day Western Turkey, as a slave. So the lowest possible rank of society, Roman society. He was bought uh, by Epaphroditus, who was the personal secretary of the Emperor Nero, and brought to Rome still as a slave. But he was brilliant, and so he was allowed to study philosophy. And eventually, he was freed. That was not unusual in ancient Rome. If uh, if a uh, Slave was was particularly brilliant and entrepreneurial. Eventually, it would be given his freedom. So, Epictetus is given his freedom, and he starts teaching Stoicism uh, in the streets of Rome. But then it gets on the nerves of a later emperor, Domitian, because the Stoics had this uh, this thing that, as we would say today, they would uh, speak truth to power, and power usually doesn't like to be spoken truth to. So, Domitian just kicks out a bunch of the Stoics out of Italy. Uh, including Epictetus, 
And Epictetus moves to Nicopolis in northwestern Greece, where he reestablishes his school and becomes the most sought-after school of the second century. So now you have somebody who started out as a slave, suffered quite a bit for throughout you know, much of his life, and then now ends up being one of the most sought-after teachers of the entire Mediterranean area. So I thought, well, this guy is interesting. Uh, let's read what he said. So there are two books uh, that are uh, that sort of collect the sayings and uh, and uh, general ideas of Epictetus. One of these is called the Discourses. And when I, as soon as I started reading the Discourses, it it really clicked. Um, mm-hmm. It was like Epictetus has he's, he talks to his students in a very straightforward manner. He's very easy to understand. He's, he makes his point very clearly. He has a sense of humor bordering on sarcasm, which I kind of liked. And he doesn't mince words. He tells you exactly what he thinks and what what he thinks you should do if you really are serious about improving yourself. And so as soon as I started reading him, that that was it. I was hooked. And here we are, you know, years later, that's still Stoicism and mostly Epictetus' version of it. Right. And there were other Greek philosophers like uh, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius who really brought it to the forefront. Um, And uh, it it seems interesting that Stoicism has made a comeback lately, especially among millennials. I've noticed that it's becoming very popular uh, in mainstream culture. So uh, why do you think, Massimo, it's suddenly you know, gained this this visibility and people are talking about it more after all these years. Right. I think you're right. Uh, over the last, um, I would say, 10 to 15 years, maybe maybe 20, uh, Stoicism has definitely increased significantly in popularity. I mean, a few years ago, if you were to look for a book on Stoicism, you probably find only uh, things that were written by scholars and right. read by very few people. Now, if you know it's overwhelming the number of of books that you have, or podcasts, or blogs, and so on and so forth. Yes. So it's so it's a good question. Why it happened? It's hard to tell exactly. Um, as far as I know, nobody has done any systematic research into this. Somebody, you know, a sociology student could be doing a PhD thesis on this and and trying to figure it out. But I do have some suggestions. One is that, in a sense, stoicism has never actually gone away. It's true that. The as a as a school as a philosophical school, it ended essentially in the third century with the rise of Christianity. But then a lot of the Stoic ideas were incorporated straight into Christianity. All of the major early Christian authors, from Saint Saint Augustine to Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, were all very familiar with Stoic ideas and incorporated them into what we recognize as Christianity, which is why often. When we start talking about stoicism, people say, but wait a minute, that that notion is familiar. That idea is familiar. Well, it's familiar probably because you got it from Christianity, but Christianity itself got it from stoicism. So in a sense, uh, it never actually went away. The second reason, I think, is because we live in the same kind of uh, times of general turmoil and political upheaval that, that led initially to the flourishing of stoicism. So the Hellenistic period that I mentioned earlier was a period of major changes. Uh, as I said, the, the, the collapse of the Macedonian Empire, the rise of the Roman Empire. So regular people uh, saw the world change literally in front of their eyes, and they couldn't do anything about it. There was there was nothing, not much they could control uh, about what was going on, and their life was completely 
turned around and, and you know new things were happening that they had no idea how to deal with. It's a fairly well known among historians and historians of philosophy that that those conditions often do give rise to new ways of looking at things, to new ways of of, uh, approaching life. So Stoicism did arise at that kind of time. Now, move uh, move forward to the 20 and 21st century, you'll see that we are in a similar situation. We we are seeing wars. We just saw a, a pandemic. Uh, we are we're facing, of course, the uncertainties of climate change. Uh, there is a lot of stuff going on, and many of us have trouble dealing with these things in, in day-to-day life. Th- these things do affect us individually, but we we really don't have a lot of control over what's going on at a sort of global level or even a national level. So, under those conditions, a personal philosophy of life, like Stoicism or like Buddhism, which has also seen. A, a resurgence uh, seems to be particularly helpful. I also think that at least the younger generation, they're looking for ways of living that go that goes outside the confines of traditional religion. Not that there's anything wrong with religion, but you know they're looking for some other ways to reach their high, highest potential and a way to live in a way that brings out the the best sides of them. I think that's correct. Uh, in fact, yeah. that to some extent, that's what happened to me when I, I left uh, Catholicism, which is a mainstream religion. And then it's like, well, now what am I doing? When, you know, how am I thinking about the world? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There is pretty good data showing that both in the United States and in most other Western countries, major religions are trending down. Um, but people still need a source of meaning, a source of you know framework for how to look at at things for prioritizing things for for making choices in terms of values so it's still there the other thing Mm. i think that probably helped was the rise of social media now i tend to be fairly skeptical about social media i'm i am on social media but i tend to be fairly skeptical i think that overall so far it has done more damage than good to society but there are a few good things and one of the good things is you know, if if you were interested in Stoicism as a philosophy of life 20 or 30 years ago, let's say, what would you do? I mean, would you go to the library and pick up a book, but then it would be really difficult to get in touch with other people that are uh, that share the same interests, that, that maybe can help you learn more, practice, etc. These days, all you need to do is to go on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever you are, and immediately you are in contact with large number of people that can help you out. Uh, just to give you an example, the largest uh, Facebook group uh, devoted to Stoicism is more than 100,000 people. That's a significant number of people, uh, right? So, and it's only it's only the the largest one. It's not the only one. There is plenty of, of others. So, I think that to some extent, social media have also helped. And then finally, one more thing that I think has been a, a significant factor in the rise of Stoicism is that. A number of years ago, a small group of people in London just got together. These were uh, cognitive behavioral therapists, uh, you know, psychotherapists, as well as philosophers. They literally got around, you know, you know, around the room, around the, in a table, you know, around, around the room, and they said, "Hey, there is this thing, stoicism. People should know more about it." And so they very uh, consciously uh, actually started organizing. Uh, events about uh, alerting the general public about stoicism 
And those events have been successful. Um, Stoic Week, which I mentioned earlier, uh, goes on every year, usually in the fall. StoicCon, which is a international conference for people. Oh, they have a StoicCon? I do, absolutely. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so those things have helped because they are, they are mm-hmm. the result of a concerted effort to tell people, hey, there is this thing out there that might be helpful to you. Mm. Uh, but Massimo, do you think that stoicism appeals to a certain kind of person with a certain kind of temperament? Because I know that a lot of people from, say, the New Age community, not just them, but other people, are concerned about stoicism making them kind of heartless, insensitive, and robot-like. Right. So, right. But you say that it's actually really helpful because it gives you this, um, it makes you more peaceful and serene is what you say. So uh, can you please uh, expand on that? Yeah, uh, to some extent, it's certainly true that Stoicism speaks naturally more to certain people than to others, or even to people in a certain stage of life that are, rather than 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 others. So that's I think that is fair to say. Although, uh, if Stoicism is taught to young children, for instance, and there are a few examples of of doing this. Uh, children apparently respond very well to it. So they they really absorb the philosophy very, very well. Now, the attitude that you're talking about, which I shared before getting into stoicism, so this notion that maybe this is going to be bad for my emotional life and you know that sort of stuff, that's really based on misconceptions about stoicism. Uh, just like in many other cases, many other philosophies, uh, people from the outside don't really have a good understanding of what's going on and what the ideas are. <clears throat> and so, for instance, there's this notion that stoicism is about a stiff upper lip, right? So just never complain, you know, whatever happens to you, you just don't. Now, that's not really what Stoics are supposed to do, but there is a grain of truth. And that grain of truth is that one of the values of Stoicism is uh, endurance, right? The, the, The notion is that if something happens to you that you cannot avoid, that it's not under your control, uh, then you have two options. You can either accept it in the best way you can and then try to move on, or you can start complaining about it. But if you start complaining about it, that actually doesn't do anything. The thing is still going to happen. Let's say, for instance, my father dying uh, several years ago. Well, I could either tell myself, look, things of of this kind do happen. It's natural for fathers to die before their children, it's and death is inevitable for everybody. So yes, I am sad, obviously. Yes, I have I'm experiencing grief, but I need to accept it as inevitable and natural. Or I could have just thrown a tantrum and and you know rail against the gods in the universe because they were taking my father. But what that what, what that would have done? Nothing. It would have simply made me feel even worse uh, because not only I still had the loss. Now on top of of that, I was. Uh, really upset as a as a result of it. Yeah, because you knew you you knew about what you can and can't control. I know that is a very right. important teaching and and, st- and stoicism. Right, it's a fundamental teaching of stoicism. Yeah. And in fact, also of of other cultures, you find it in Buddhism. You find it even in modern Christianity. The so called serenity prayer, which is often uh, recited. At oh the yeah, the serenity prayer. Yes. Right. Yeah, m- beginning of meetings of a uh, twelve step step organization. Well, if if you think about it, the serenity prayer asks. God to give you, in that case, to give you the uh, wisdom to tell the difference between what you can change and what you cannot change, 
the courage to change what you can, and the uh, serenity to accept what you cannot. Well, that's essentially a Stoic idea. It goes actually back to Epictetus, the, the guy that I mentioned earlier on, uh, where he said, uh, at the, right at the beginning of the handbook, he says, some things are up to us, other things are not up to us. And a good life consists in focusing our attention on the things that are up to us, because that's where we can make a difference, and then develop an attitude of acceptance and equanimity toward the things that are not up to us, because we can't do anything anyway. Uh, so, and this applies to, uh, like, you know, the big events in life, like loved ones dying. But it also makes a difference on a day-to-day -day life. Like, for instance, I travel a lot for for work. In a few days, I'm I'm getting on a hopefully getting on a plane and getting to Rome. Well, so it happens fairly often that I get to the airport and the flight is canceled or delayed by several hours or things like that, right? So there, the Stoic would say, okay, what is up to you here? Uh, it's not up to me to change things about airports and airplanes. That's outside mm -hmm. of my control. I can't do anything about it. What is up to me is to act immediately on how to fix the situation as much as I can. So can I book myself on a different flight or something like that? Once that is done, all I can do is to sit down, get a drink, read a book, and just wait. If I yeah. start getting upset and start right. yelling at people and all that, that's not all the drama. At all. All, the yeah, drama. all the drama. Yeah. It doesn't help. Besides, oh, we've seen person... we've seen people like that in the airport. Oh, I yeah. Know I have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the, but the person, you know, think about it this way: the person behind the counter, the counter to which you are yelling, he will be very. First of all, it's not his fault that that the plane is delayed, and also he will be very happy if you were on the plane out of the way. You know, so so you are you are on the same on the same page here. So it it doesn't make a lot of sense to just get upset and start yelling. You just try to solve the problem, or at least to find the some way uh, to get where you want to be. And then other than that, just relax, calm down, read a book, you know, chat with friends, do whatever you need to do. That is uh, the stoic way of doing things. Yeah, because I think that people in a way feel like they can control the situation by throwing their weight around, but right. that's actually not but true. The, you you're making it worse for yourself. <laughs> right. You're making it worse for everybody else around you. Exactly. You, you end up acting like a jerk and hurting yourself in the process. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, we tend to get in our own way. In fact, the Stoics say that we have bad habits of the mind and and they actually mention four mental movements that challenges. You've described those beautifully in your book. So, can you tell us what they are, Massimo? Yeah, for a Stoic uh, in in Stoic psychology basically, there there's a there's a thing that it's that I guess could be described as Stoic psychology. Uh, Here's how it works. If I'm exposed to a situation or a person or somebody saying something, that situation or person generates what Stoics call an impression. An impression is my first automatic judgment about what's going on, what's happening. And the trick, according to the Stoics, is never to go with your automatic judgment, never to go on your first impression, but slow down on purpose and allow yourself time to examine that impression and to see what, in fact, it consists of and what is the best way to act. For instance, going back to the example of missing the plane, right? The first immediate reaction might be, oh, this is a catastrophe. I had a meeting to, you know, later this afternoon, and now I'm going to miss the meeting, and this is going to be horrible, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Epictetus will say, hold on. 
That's your immediate automatic reaction. But slow down. Is it really a catastrophe? Is it, is it really something that big? Can the meeting not be rescheduled for the following day? Uh, can you not do something about it? Or can you have the meeting maybe uh, via Zoom instead of uh, actually being there? That sort of stuff. So the notion is do not take your first reaction as granted. Just slow down, um, pause, and then think about what a better way to consider the situation, react to the situation. In a sense, stoicism tells us to do the opposite of the Nike commercial. So just do it. (laughs) Yeah. So just doing it. It's like slow down, pause for a second, and then ask yourself, what am I supposed to do about this thing? What What is the best way to examine this thing? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that comes from developing your emotional maturity, developing your character. You've written a book called The Quest for Character where you say, your character does play an essential role in being able to kind of execute these these disciplines of stoicism. So tell us a bit about that, what the role that character plays um in Yeah, being, we don't yeah, we don't stoic. talk about yeah, you don't talk too 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 much, I think, these days about about character, and I think we should. So it's not just philosophers uh, like myself who are saying that. It's also psychologists uh, who are paying attention, increasing attention to the notion of character. Now, character is a complicated thing. Uh, Essentially, character is a set of behavioral propensities. So if we say, for instance, if you say that, that a friend of yours is generous, for instance, what do you mean? Well, you mean that other things being equal, that person will uh, spend time or money or effort trying to help other people. Right? That's what it means to be generous. Now, she might not necessarily do it always, you know, all the time, but on average, that's what you expect from that person, as opposed to, say, somebody who is, on the other hand, sort of stingy, for instance, and uh, that person will do exactly the opposite. It will not you know, reliably not spend time or money or effort helping other people. Now, just like everything about human beings, about human behavior, probably part of our character is the result of our genetic makeup. So we inherit certain character traits or certain tendencies, behavioral tendencies from our parents. Uh, that That's a safe bet. Not that we know a lot about the genetics of character. We, we don't. But it's a safe bet to imagine that, you know, some people are naturally more generous or naturally more, you know, temperate and so on and so forth. Just like, let's say, to use an analogy, some people are have a propensity for playing musical instruments. They have an ability to learn how to play musical instruments. And other people are not so musically inclined. Even You can tell that even from when they're kids. So that probably means that it's the result of genetics. However, the idea that both the Stoics and modern psychologists have is that no matter what your starting point in terms of character, you can work to improve it. Again, you can you, we can use the analogy with musical instrument. Uh, I may not be musically inclined, but if I make an effort, I'm going to learn at, the, at least the basics of musical uh, playing. I can I know this for a fact because I tried a couple of times and I did learn. Uh, I'm not good at it. I will never be a Carnegie Hall because I just don't have that kind of natural gift. But I can improve. I can, you know, if I if I exercise, if I do my little scales uh, every day and little tunes, et cetera, et cetera, you do learn something. The same goes for other skills that we acquire, but they're probably also influenced by genetics. For instance, learning languages. There are some people for, for whom learning languages is very easy. 
I hate them because, you know, it's like, wow, how did you do that? You know, oh, I know 11 languages. Damn, that's a, that's quite an accomplishment. I could never do that. But I learned, for instance, English. It's not my first language. Of course, my first language is Italian. And I think I did an okay job. So you did a great you job. Can't, <laughs> so you can do that kind of that kind of thing. And how do you do it? Well, by mostly by practicing. Right? Yeah. By habit. Aristotle will say, you just do it every day by habit and you improve. Now, the question is, yeah, but how do I improve my character? Because yeah. we all and understand. how do we make it appealing? How do we make it appealing yeah. to the younger generations? Because a lot of them, when you say the word character, I feel like they think of it as an archaic term or something like you're preaching right. to them. So, yeah, how do we make it something that people would feel motivated to actually cultivate? Yeah, that is, that is a good question. I mean, the word character, you're right. The, the, the word character is often considered kind of old-fashioned. I know, because I've like, written you know. about it, and I've put content out there, and I sometimes I, I don't really get the response I want. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'm so, not surprised. Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised. I don't know. Perhaps we can term we can put it in terms of self improvement, or you know, because Probably. that's really what it is about. Yeah. But the question uh, that uh, that it's um, that we need to answer is well, yeah. But how do you do it? Because we have a pretty good idea of how to learn a musical instrument or how to learn a new language. You know, what does it mean to practice that? What does it mean to practice character? Well, let's say. Let's go back to the example of generosity, for instance. So let's say that I realize that, you know, I, I could be more generous. I, I, I could improve in that area. So that, that's one aspect of my character that could definitely stand some improvement. Well, how do I do it? There's a number of ways. One way, for instance, could be that I decide that from now on, in the morning, before leaving my apartment, I'm going to pick up some change, put it in my pockets, and then give it to the first homeless person that I see in the streets, no questions asked. Now, initially, that sort of behavior will feel awkward because you're not used to it. You'll feel almost embarrassed probably um, in doing it. You even ask yourself, well, is this really the right way to go about it? That sort of stuff. But if you persist, if you keep doing it, day after day after day after a while it becomes habit it becomes second nature after a while you just pick up automatically find yourself picking up the coin and, and give it to somebody without even thinking about it. it it's similar to the way in which let's say we learn how to drive a car initially you have to pay attention mindfully to everything the steering wheel the brakes the shifting of the gears the the pedestrians crossing in front of you the other cars everything which is why it's so nerve-wracking to learn how to drive a car, especially as I did it years ago in Rome in the middle of traffic, on a huge amount of traffic. But once you get into it, once you start doing it, the more, the more you do it, after a few you know, hours, days, weeks start passing, you don't have to think about it anymore. It becomes automatic. It's not like you consciously have to decide every single action. It's just you see yourself, you know, your foot and your and your hands are going in the right in the right place and they're doing the right thing because that has become habit. Evidence shows from modern psychology shows that character works in the same way. There is a basic skill level that is probably the result of your genetic makeup. And then on top of that, you can improve it if you mindfully apply yourself to uh to embrace a new habit and to do it on a regular basis.
And how would our lives improve by developing our character? What is the payoff? The payoff is, according to the Stoics, that you're going to have a much more harmonious life. The basic idea is that we are social animals, as I was saying earlier. And so for us, for human beings, happiness really depends in great measure on our interactions with other people. Yes, we can, of course, survive on our own. Uh, We can do okay on our own. We can live on a deserted island for some time at least. But we don't thrive. We don't flourish unless we interact with other people. If you think about it, most of the most of the meaningful things we do in life are involve other people. Uh, it, there is pretty ample. This is not just the Stoics say so, saying so. Again, there is more, much research in modern science, modern cognitive science that shows that the things that people find meaningful involve other people. Uh, relationships with your friends and your and your relatives, even relationships with your colleagues or with even with strangers, you feel better if you have a positive interaction with a stranger than than if you start yelling at each other or if you even ignore each other. And since stoicism is in large part an attempt to become more pro-social, to you know open up to other people, one of the fundamental ideas of stoicism is cosmopolitanism. The word literally means being a member of the human uh, universal family. So cosmopolis is universal family or universal city. And so the notion is that according to the Stoics, we should treat everyone, whether we know we know them or not, whether they are our neighbors or they live on the other side of the planet, as if they were our brothers and sisters. And this mm. is also a very Christian notion, right? It it's is. the same. And I think people would want to be around you more. You'll just be more likable. You know, people are like, oh, that's a really nice guy. It's a really nice right. lady, you know? So I think it'll just make you more likable. And I that will lead to more doors opening for you, more opportunities on the personal and professional front. Correct. I mean, who who wants to be a bad guy anyway? Who wants to be right, like, you know, a yeah. flashy kind of person <laughs> exactly. uh, who doesn't have friends or doesn't have partners or anything like that? Yeah. So. Stoicism is one way. I mean, there are other there are other yes. ways, but it's one way to cultivate that kind of attitude of being more in. Epictetus literally uses the words harmony with nature, meaning with human nature. Massimo, before I let you go, your whole book. I want to talk to you about you know the three disciplines of Stoicism yes. because that's what is centered on. So, can you give us a quick overview of the three disciplines? Sure. So the three disciplines are, again, an idea that is put forth by Epictetus, and they're kind of a fundamental uh, ideas about um, of Stoic philosophy that is very actually very helpful. Essentially, Epictetus told his students that there are three areas of self-improvement where, that you want to work on. And these all these three areas all have to do with improving our judgment. Basically, the way in which you become a better person, according to, to the Stoics, is by improving your judgment, by reacting better and better to uh, circumstances. And there are three areas in which you want to do that. One is called the, the discipline of desire and aversion. Aversion is just the opposite of a desire, right? So it's something that you don't want as opposed to desiring. That discipline is essentially teaching yourself what is really important in life and what is not, as opposed to what other people or society at large will tell you it's important. For instance, uh, for a Stoic, uh, material things like money, fame, uh, you know, stuff that you that you get, those are not important. They have value, 
they they do make your life more pleasant. There's no question about it. But they're not really the important parts of life. The important part of life is living in harmony with other people, is having good relationships with other people, which in turn is the result of having a good character. So the discipline of desire uh, essentially helps you reorient your priorities and say, okay, I'm I'm too focused on material things and not enough on relationships, let's say, on not enough on, on how to behave with other people. The second, the second discipline, it's called the discipline of action. And it has to do with what how you actually act with other people. How what is a good harmonious interaction with other people? And for instance, uh, uh, just to give you an example, Epictetus at one point says, look, if you see somebody who is drinking a lot, you know, say beer or wine or whatever it is, don't say that he drinks too much because that's a value judgment that you probably are not in a position to make. You don't know that person. You don't know why he's drinking. You don't know how much drinking is actually too much for him. You can simply observe a fact. Oh, that guy is drinking. Fine. But abstain from judgment. We are too judgmental of other people and not sufficiently judgmental of us, of ourselves. So basically, again, this is something that resonates with Christians, right? Look at your own deficiencies and your own problems rather than starting judging other, other people. So the discipline of action is in part about reversing this natural, this this way of doing things, and saying, "Look, give give other people a break. Uh, they may or may not be drinking too much. They may or may not be bad or good or whatever. That's not your concern. Your concern is: Are you a good person? Are you trying to do the right yeah. thing? Because that's under your control. That's up to yeah. you. Personal what accountability. Exactly. Personal accountability first, and then you're going to start talking about others. The third discipline. It's called the discipline of assent. Assent simply means, of course, to agree on something, right? And we kind of talked about it before. This is about improving your judgment. So if you say, so, which means questioning your first reaction to things. If you say are laid off from work, uh, most people's immediate reaction might be, oh, this is a catastrophe. This is a bad thing. This is, this is really not a good thing. Um, but the discipline of, uh, ascent says, hold on, slow down, because maybe this is the, the the objective fact is simply that you do not have a job at the moment. That's the only that's a fact. Whether that fact is actually good or bad, whether it's a catastrophe or an opportunity, that depends in part on how you react. Maybe you were actually stuck in your job for a long time. You didn't have the guts to quit. And now that you've been let go, you actually have opportunities to rethink what you want to do, take some time off, and and pursue some other some other venue. So the notion is that there is a distinction between facts, objective facts about the world, and our judgments about those facts. Yes, the facts are what they reality. are. Exactly, objective reality versus subjective understanding mm-hmm. of that reality. And the objective reality is what it is. You can't change it. Fine. You lost your job. That's it. But your reaction is up to you. You can actually change your way of looking at things and say, oh, instead of a catastrophe, I'm going to look at this as an opportunity or at the very least as a challenge, as a way to for me to grow instead of moping around for the next several weeks and, you know, and, and saying to myself, oh, how bad things are. Yeah. Do the Stoics say anything about managing our feelings when things like this happen 
Yeah, that's a big thing, which which is often also the source of misunderstandings about stoicism. We were saying at the beginning of our conversation that one of the problems is that stoics are usually seen from the outside as suppressing their emotions, right? But in fact, they don't, for one thing, because it's impossible. You cannot suppress your emotions. <laughs> Just like any, any psychologist will tell you that if you try, you're only going to get into yourself into, into trouble. What the Stoics are trying to do is to modulate their emotions, to literally talk to their emotions. And they're trying to move themselves away from what they think are unhealthy emotions and at the same time actively cultivating what they see as healthy emotions. Let me give you an example to make it more clear. So the one good example of an unhealthy emotion for a Stoic is anger. That's because anger tends to override reason. When you, if you act on the on the basis of anger, you're going to do things that are not exactly, not necessarily reasonable. Even if your anger is justified, even if it's you know somebody insulted you or somebody did something bad to you, and your anger is in fact justified, if you act on the basis of that anger, probably you're going to be regretting it because you you're not thinking straight. Your anger is so overwhelming that you're not thinking straight. So Seneca, for instance, who wrote a whole book on anger, says instead what you want to do is to disengage from the situation. Go for a walk or excuse yourself to the to the bathroom or count until 20. Do whatever it is that kind of calms you down. Once you're a little bit more calm, then you can come back to the situation and say, okay, what was going on here? Uh, what is it that upset me so much and what can I do? That's how Stoics deal with unhealthy yeah, emotions. That can save us from a lot of problems, really, just doing yeah. that one thing. <laughs> yeah. Seneca says that it would improve family life, life with your friends, the and even world relations, at large. Yeah, relations with like, the nations. Exactly. A lot of the violent acts that are taking place in society happen because people don't think about what they're doing and the consequences of their actions. They just exactly. do it. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, an example of a positive emotion that the Stoics want to cult actively cultivate is love. But love here is understood as certain kinds of love, not love as in I'm head over heels over you know that particular romantic person. love. Romantic love. We're talking about it, the kind of mature love that people might have for their friends, for their children, for their yeah. partners. The Greeks have different words for yes, that's they right. Have yeah, specific words for different types of lo love. That's right. Yeah. They did use a four or five different words yeah. to identify different aspects of, you know, the English language from that perspective is rather limited. We only have one word uh, that we apply to everything uh, that has to do with love. But the idea is that some kinds of love are to be cultivated. It's good to be uh, in love with your partner or or with your friends or with uh, your children. And so you want to cultivate, or even with certain ideas. Uh, you know, the, I want to be in love with the idea of justice, for instance, or the idea that uh, we should be uh, trying to live in a better world, cause make, make a better world for the next generation. Those are things that the Stoics, those are emotional reactions that the Stoics would cultivate. And I would say, yes, that's that's a good way to to feel and therefore, also a good way to think about things. Great. Massimo, thank you. Thank you for taking us through the three disciplines. And, you know, if you want to know more, if you want to know about each one of them in detail and do all the great exercises, I highly recommend that you get 
uh, Maslow's book, A Handbook for New Stoics, How to Thrive in a World Out of Your Control. And uh, if you want to, if you want to check out that book and other of his books, you can find them in all major bookstores and on his website, MassimoPagliucci.org. The link will be in the description. Massimo, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for bringing awareness to this new way of living and being in the world. I'm sure our listeners will love it. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.